Welcome to another edition of the Flathead Beacon Podcast. I'm your host, Micah Drew, recording from the beautiful, sunny Flathead Valley. It's Friday, March 31st. At 8 a.m. on March 15th, Glacier National Park's advanced online reservation window opened to a groundswell of prospective backpackers eager to nab a prized wilderness campground permit. Within 10 minutes, however, the park's most coveted campsites had filled, and the reservation window slammed shut. This new online system was a departure from the previous system for managing access to the park's wilderness background sites, which utilized a manual lottery that took weeks to sort out, and it's part of a nationwide shift towards online, contactless reservations to access outdoor spaces. My colleague Tristan Scott wrote about this shift for the last print edition of the Flathead Beacon, and in his article he quoted Will Rice, a researcher with the Wildland and Recreation Management Lab at the University of Montana, who studies shifting access to outdoor spaces. Today I talked to Will about his research, how online systems can be exclusionary, and what the solutions to managing access to popular outdoor spaces may look like in the future. Before I bring you that chat, though, a quick reminder that this podcast is sponsored in part by members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. Members support all of our journalism in all of its forms, online and here in the podcast studio, and they do so for as little as $5 per month. Next week, we're launching a new Editors Club website with some new perks, so to find out more or join today, visit beaconeditorsclub.com. I'm joined today by Will Rice, the head of the Wildland and Recreation Management Lab at the University of Montana. Will, thanks for chatting with me today. Yeah, thanks, Micah. Starting off, can you explain exactly what it is that you do at the Wildland and Recreation Management Research Lab? What are you doing over there? Yeah, we do a lot of a lot of applied work. That's kind of what unites all the work we do. It's very applied as it relates generally to wildland and recreation management, outdoor recreation management. We're generally managers come to us, public land managers, wilderness managers come to us with a uh, issue they're having that they want some data to help them strategize a solution towards. And we help collect that data, analyze that data. And yeah, we're, we kind of view ourselves as kind of problem solvers. So thinking about how we can use science and data to help park outdoor recreation, wilderness managers reach solutions. And give me just a little bit of your background. How did you end up uh, in this field? Yeah, I started out as a park ranger. Actually, I started out on trail crew and then became a park ranger. Um, and, you know, spending time in national parks, especially is where a lot of, kind of my professional experience came from. I started to notice things. That I was like, man, I, you know, I really want to be interesting to study this phenomenon you're seeing, right? Like you're, I worked at Grand Canyon and saw you know, lots of people moving through this environment and kind of discovered that there's a whole realm of science that helps managers deal with with the people in a space like that and understands how we can change behavior of people in order to to help them have a, have a reduced impact on the environment, those sorts of things. Questions kind of popping up um, throughout my time working for the National Park Service. Um, and then I did a fellowship after I graduated undergrad with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that allowed me to kind of my toe into research a little bit more and then started grad school and 
kept going to grad school because it was I, I kind of fell in love with the research side and then ended up here at the University of Montana, which is really the, you know, this is this is the place to study wilderness in the world. You know, a lot of people don't know it. They're on our campus, we have, you know, the humble forestry building, the humble Aldo Leopold Wilderness Research Institute that kind of looks like a pizza hut on our campus. You know, that's where in those buildings, in those kind of, for me, those are like hallowed spaces where so much of the tools and the policy and the the frameworks that we use as um, in, in the wilderness management community around the world were developed there. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's a huge point of pride, I think, for those of us who work here to know that we're working on that legacy. Well, people across Montana obviously love their access to these recreational spaces, to the wilderness, to our big national parks. Specifically up here in the Flathead, we do have Glacier National Park right next door, which a lot of people love visiting. And there's been a lot of shifts in recent time on how to manage access to the park. And most recently, we've seen the shift to using an online reservation system for backcountry campgrounds and some of the front country campgrounds. And you have done some work on this. I believe it was a study published last year that looked at a couple parks across the country and what possibly adverse effects having a reservation system for online reservations had. Can you kind of talk a little bit about the shift by the Park Service and other agencies to using this online method of of reserving campgrounds as opposed to, you know, you used to be able to drive up a lot of times and and just kind of walk in? Yeah, I guess I'll I'll start with um maybe to take a step back. There's there's if you have campsites that you're you're administering as a public agency, for instance, you, there's there's multiple ways you can ration those campsites is, is the kind of technical term we use. You know, you can do, like you mentioned, a reservation system. You can do a first come, first serve system. You can do a lottery. Um, you can do a queuing system. Like there's there's different things you can do. Um, but each one of those has trade-offs. And so what, you know, I can't speak for the agencies themselves, but a trend we're seeing nationally is increasing demand for these these campsites. And no matter which rationing mechanism you choose, um, there's going to be trade-offs probably around fairness and equity. In our study, we chose to look um, at reservation systems versus first-come, first-serve allocation or rationing of campsites. And we found that in five, looking at five campgrounds across the country, within three of those that are within national parks, we found that the campers who were camping in campsites that required reservations were coming from from home locales that had significantly higher median household income. You know, in this one study that I wouldn't say is generalizable to the greater system by any means, but in this one study, we did find that there were there there was an impact. There's something different. The campsites are the same. The the resources there are the same. Um, it's just how people got into those campsites. And for me, as a researcher, really made me think, wow, like we need to better understand these trade-offs. Um, there is something here. You know, this was this is an exploratory study that no one had done this before. Like, but it signaled, wow, this is something we should be starting to pay attention to. Is the importance of rationing, and we spend a lot of time in my field of research thinking about what management strategies should we choose, and if if limiting use and in a campground, that's a natural thing. Like, you can only have so many campsites; you have to limit use, right? You can't have unlimited campsites. That's often where the framework stops is that management action of how how are you going to maintain 
in, in the case of the National Park Service, maintain enjoyment of visitors while also preserving resources for future enjoyment of visitors. When it comes to campgrounds, you have to limit use. And so what we found is, yeah, we really need to think about how we're rationing that use because it could have pretty big impacts on the equity. Yeah. Can you dive into that uh, a little bit more? How did you collect this data and and what exactly did you see in those socioeconomic differences between reservations and walk-ins? Yeah, sure. So I worked with um, Dr. Jen Thompson, who's here at the University of Montana, and our grad students, Peter Whitney and Jacqueline Rushing on this study. And we used mobile phone location data, um, which is anonymized data. Basically, it just shows um, it, we can generally understand where people are coming from based on where their phones spend the night most nights without a, like a census block level. So not your individual home necessarily. Um, but we can understand where, what locale do you call home? Like what neighborhood or what city? With us, we're using home census blocks, block groups, which which is really like your neighborhood. So in Missoula, Montana, where I live, it would be like my census block group is essentially my neighborhood. And we're able to understand the demographics of that neighborhood through census data. And then we looked at where those folks were camping, whether they were camping in a site that was first come, first serve or reservation only. And then we were able to look at differences in the demographics of their home locales. Um, So people coming from neighborhoods with higher incomes versus lower incomes. And, you know, in some of the cases within the campgrounds we studied, none of which were in Montana, because it had to be pretty specific. Like we were we were doing this as an experiment and you had to have campsites or sorry, you had to have a campground that had some loops that were only on a first come first serve basis, some loops that were only on a reservation only basis. And then they also had to have pretty good cell coverage so we could have high confidence in the data we were getting. So we made sure that each campground we were looking at had coverage from at least three of the four major carriers um, as to not to introduce any sort of economic bias based on the price of various cell carriers. And, you know, in, in, in one of the campgrounds, the difference between the median household incomes of the home locales of people camping in a, a campsite that required reservations versus one that didn't was $6,000 on average, which in Montana, I think the median household income is somewhere around $60,000. I could be wrong about that, but that's that would be a 10% difference in income in, in the state like Montana, which is significant. So it's not just statistically significant, but it's, it's practically significant as well. You mentioned that you you guys picked national parks and national monument sites for these this study. Do you yes. have any sense of of uh, what it's like beyond the national park scene? I know you might not have done specific research, but uh, it does seem to be the trend. State parks and other, and other you know maybe less notorious areas. Does it seem like it would hold? I don't know. You know, it's it's. I don't think we can generalize these findings really beyond this necessarily. The question you bring up is a really good one, and it's one that, you know, I've talked to folks in the National Forest who who are interested in that specifically, but there's just such little research on rationing that's been done to date. Um, Most of the research that we're pulling from is researchers you kind of build on the shoulders of of other researchers, right? Like all the research on rationing, (laughs) besides a tiny little bit and most of it that we've done here in the last couple of years, was done in the late 70s and early 1980s. 
And things have changed a lot since then. Think about technology too, right? George Stanky, who is a scientist here in Missoula studying this stuff back in the 70s, said it'll be pretty soon. He uses the term computer wizardry. Like pretty soon we'll have computer wizardry that'll help us out with all that stuff. We have computer wizardry now. And so it's changing the system. So while that science that was done in the 70s and 80s is is helpful and helps us better understand the, the problem and some of the underlying theory to help us build towards a solution towards these issues. Future research done in national forests, in state parks is needed. The reason we chose national parks for this study was mostly from a data availability standpoint. The National Park Service has a really clean data set of all their campgrounds. We were able to identify those that had loops that had some first come first serve and some reservation only. So it was, we didn't necessarily have to you know, call up a bunch of ranger stations. We were able to figure it out a little bit more efficiently. That's what we chose national parks. Well, lastly, just kind of a a general question for you. I think one of the numbers in that study that you noted was a a campground that had 50 or 60 campsites that had something like 19 or 20,000 attempts to reserve it for a time window. Here in Glacier, we saw the backcountry permits all get reserved in 10 or 15 minutes for the whole summer. With this, you know, giant demand and, you know, a limited public resource, what is the management strategy going forward? How, how do you as a, as a researcher in this field start to conceptualize, I guess, that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, like, I love that question. No, and, and because that's really, you know, when we were, when the, when the paper came out on campgrounds and reservations versus first come, first serve, a lot of the original narrative was like, reservations bad, first come, first serve good. You know, that's like just kind of what, you know, as I was explaining it to my my own parents, that's kind of what they were thinking, right? And it's so much more nuanced than that. And that's what I, there's trade-offs. For instance, like you could imagine if all campsites in Glacier were first come, first serve, that provides its own issues. That provides inequities for the people who, for instance, may not live near the park and can't get there as soon as that backcountry office opens, right? So there's going to be trade-offs either way. And so what we've proposed, and my student Kelsey Phillips and I just published a paper in Leisure Sciences that proposes a new planning principle that gets directly to your question. And we're calling it the recreation rationing spectrum. And essentially what it's saying is, historically in recreation planning, since the 1970s, we've been looking to diversity as a way to make sure they're providing quality experiences to people. If you look at the management of Flathead National Forest, it, it relies on this idea of a recreation opportunity spectrum. I mean, there's different types of recreation opportunities for different types of people. There are certain lakes you can motorize boat on. There are certain lakes that you can only canoe or kayak on. There are certain trails that allow for mountain bikes. There are certain trails that don't. There are certain places you can take your ATV. There are certain places you can go hike in wilderness. There's this different strokes for different folks sort of idea that really is the ground on which recreation planning springs up. It's the foundation is this idea of we need to provide diverse experiences for diverse preferences and needs. And what we've kind of failed to do over the last 40, 50 years is extend that principle of different strokes for different folks, different opportunities for different preferences and needs to how we ration use. And so what we're proposing is taking that idea of a spectrum and understanding that no matter how you ration use, whether that's a lottery, first come, first serve, reservation only, there's going to be a trade-off there. We can, if we have 
it, you know, say two different ways to get a permit or two different ways to camp in a national forest campground. You know, maybe it's a six month reservation window and a two month reservation window, or maybe it's 75% of the sites on a reservation system, 25% on a first curb first serve system. We can better thread the needle of meeting people's specific preferences and needs, allowing the planners and the non-planners to, to have access to it. If someone cannot plan six months in advance, they're essentially eliminated from, from the possibility of getting a, a campsite six months in advance. And with the with glaciers, wilderness permits, we're seeing a spectrum, right? There's certain permits that are available on a walk-up basis. So it's allowing for that. And that's really an important point here, too. There are these spectrums, these recreation rationing spectrums already in place in a lot of a lot of places. But there are some places in our federal and state lands that do just have one single rationing mechanism in place. And we kind of propose this is taking this idea of diversity, taking this idea of a spectrum and extending it to how we ration used to say, Let's just acknowledge that there are weaknesses to no matter how we choose to ration these things. There's no perfect solution here. There's no solution that's going to navigate everyone's constraints and barriers to, to getting access to recreation. And let's just provide a diversity of opportunities without providing so many opportunities that becomes too confusing for us to us being the public to, to you know, navigate these systems. But two or three different ways to secure a camping permit um, or a campsite or a river permit or whatever it might be. Will, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and shedding a little extra light on the behind the scenes nuts and bolts of understanding management of these resources. Yeah, thanks for engaging in this kind of awesome nerdy discussion about park management. I love it. You can read all about the changes to managed access at Glacier National Park, as well as state parks across Montana, in Tristan Scott's piece in the last issue of the Flathead Beacon newspaper, or online at the link in the show notes. Remember, beginning next week, all of our content will be found exclusively online at flatheadbeacon.com, and the print edition of the Flathead Beacon will no longer be distributed throughout the Flathead Valley. We do still, however, have Flathead Living Magazine. The new issue is out now. Now, here's a quick roundup of some news from the week. Construction season is underway in Montana, and the state's Department of Transportation announced there will be delays along Highway 93, northwest of Twin Bridges Road in Whitefish, and on a portion of Highway 2 between Kalispell and Marion. The $4 million safety improvement projects will involve shoulder widening, grading, and the addition of guardrails and rumble strips at both sites. Crews will be directing traffic with flaggers and pilot cars beginning in April. In a contentious hearing on Tuesday, the Montana Senate Judiciary Committee heard testimony on House Bill 721, a proposal by Kalispell Representative Matt Regeer that would ban dilation and evacuation procedures in Montana, a form of miscarriage and abortion treatment. Though Regeer emphasized in an address to the committee that HB 721 is not about the abortion debate, participant testimony as well as questions from the committee delved into issues of abortion access, religious freedom, and privacy rights, echoing debates that have embroiled Montana since the overturning of Roe v. Wade last June. 
despite exemptions in the bill that would allow physicians to perform D&E procedures in emergency cases, medical professionals speaking about the bill forecast grim consequences for labor and delivery care in the state should the legislation pass, as it would threaten doctors with severe criminal and financial penalties. And lastly, on Wednesday, virtuoso violinist Midori will be performing with the Glacier Symphony at McLaren Hall on the FVCC campus. The symphony will be performing Robert Schumann's Violin Concerto in D minor, the last composition he wrote before his untimely death. The performance will be an intersection of longevity and music as both Midori and the Glacier Symphony are celebrating their 40th seasons. That's all for today. As always, you can stay up to date on all of the latest breaking and in-depth news online at flatheadbeacon.com. Also, be sure to pick up the last hard copy of the Flathead Beacon, which is on stands throughout the Flathead Valley now, but they will likely all be gone by the end of the weekend. This episode of the Flathead Beacon podcast was hosted, edited, mixed, and produced by me, Micah Drew, and music in this episode includes songs by local Flathead Valley artist, Mike Murray. That's the show for this week. Starting next week, we are going to be launching a new podcast called The Editor's Club, which will feature managing editor Tristan Scott and editor-in-chief Kellen Brown discussing topics of the week, riffing on each other, and uh, hopefully providing a good behind-the-scenes perspective of the newsroom and the news. Stay tuned for that coming to your podcast feeds next week. Thanks for listening. See you next week.